For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And praise be, part of the accomplishment takes place when Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our gospel passage closes today with Jesus' meditation on God's written word and how inviolable it is, how it will not go away, and how it will be fulfilled first in his life and then secondly in, in our lives. It gave me reason to think about what was on my mind last week when our congregation met. We had our annual meeting, and I found myself uh, thinking about something else that Paul had written in the same, to the same group that he talks about the, having the mind of Christ. He wrote to the Corinthians about them being living epistles and what a wondrous thing it is for God's Word to be written on our hearts. Paul had said, you yourselves are our epistle written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are an epistle of Christ, prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I'm personally at an interesting juncture in life. I tried to retire after a quarter century of teaching. And um, during those years of teaching, I was teaching Paul predominantly. And all the way through that teaching career, I found myself feeling somewhat irresponsible for the fact that so many of my colleagues were writing book after book after book, and I wasn't writing that many books. Instead, I was finding students knocking on my door and wanting to talk about their lives, of all things, or their, their friendships, their ministries, where they were going. And as the years went on, only a couple of books got written, and I just spent a lot of time with students. And I really had to, I felt like I was following God's call, and I had to take comfort in the fact that as great as Paul's impact was on the emergence of, the, of early Christianity, and as great as his impact was, you know how much of his writings we have? 13 letters. That's it. He must have felt this, he must have faced the same thing. I, there's so much that I would love to write down, but I don't have the time. I got all these people to deal with. And so then I retired and I thought, okay, now's the chance to write all those books. And then along comes the cathedral and it's like you. And I felt the Lord saying, yeah, you, you have more writing to do and it may or may not be from a keyboard. It may be in these living epistles. Jesus's words about God's law are very sobering. They're not going away. They're going to, we're going to have to deal with them one way or the other, either in curse or blessing. Um, the, the wonderful thing about what we get to do is to take those words in and they're a blessing, as opposed to, do you remember in Harry Potter when he has to write I, you, something like not lying into his hand and it just bleeds and bleeds and bleeds? There's this incongruence between what's in his heart and the unjustness of what is being, what is being demanded of him. 
And I cannot but think that J.K. Rowling, when she thought of that little literary device, had in mind Franz Kafka's short story from the beginning of the 20th century in the penal colony, where the punishment for your, for your life of failure is that the thing that you failed to do is inscribed on your back with this horrible needle mechanism where you're strapped down and you, you, you bleed, you bleed out. And, it, and Kafka, was, Kafka was Jewish and his friends say that he was actually a very ebullient, positive person who really felt like he could know God, but he was like, he was purging his fears when he wrote his horrific stories and from a Jewish point of view, that is the greatest fear, that my life will be in such a contradiction with the commandments that I know that are true, that I will know not a God of love, but a God of wrath and condemnation. And here's the deal. The law's primary intent is not to condemn us. It's, it was designed to sketch out what is intended to be a congruence between who our Father is in heaven and, and who He is making us to be, His character and ours. After the tragedy of the fall in the Garden of Eden, the law's effect is to accentuate the gap between who He is and who we are and to create an impossible, create the, the image of an impossible task for us to, to attain. But the good news is we were never intended to overcome that gap on our own. And that's part of what Jesus is talking about. All that law will be accomplished and fulfilled in my life because I will live the law-obedient life that no, nobody else can. And I will go to a cruel cross and the law will be, the, the law will be jabbed into my wrists and into my feet, a crown of thorns will be placed on my head and I will be pierced. I will be pierced for your transgressions and the curse will be broken and I will rise and then I will begin to write. And what I will write will not be, will not be foreboding, will not be a curse will not be a task that you cannot, that you could never possibly fulfill. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, he says in Matthew, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and I am gentle of heart. I will come and I will be among you and I will work in you the character of my father and your father. And what we read last week in, um, in our gospel reading was the Beatitudes, which is the overture of what that life is that is being written into us living epistles. And if you came to church in the morning last week, you were given homework. Graham King's bishop from England, whose words must be taken very seriously, assigned homework, and it was to memorize the Beatitudes. So um, whether you were able to hear that and, and do the homework or not, I'd like us to take a look at those Beatitudes. 
they're on page three of the New Testament end of the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. Here's what living epistles look like. That would be page three, page three in the New Testament section of the Bible. So Matthew, it's chapter five, page three. And I'd ask you to either read out loud or recite out loud with me verses 3 through 10, the Beatitudes. Ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be sad. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When the word is written on our hearts, that's what it looks like for these are who Jesus is. Now, here's where the salt comes in. You are the salt of the earth. Salt makes things tasty when otherwise they're just bland. They bring interest to food. Maybe more important than that, they preserve. Meat rots. After a while, it stinks. And if it doesn't have salt doing its thing, it just has to be, it has to be thrown away. Now, for me, for me, well, I got to say, my default is not the Beatitudes. I'm not by nature a humble person. I'm a proud person. I'm not by nature one who comes alongside people and mourns, mourns with them for what is wrong in their life. I tend to be looking, I mourn for myself when I see somebody getting ahead of me and I want to take them down. I'm not by nature meek, I'm angry. I'm not by nature someone who is really out there trying to make righteousness and, and good things happen. I just want to go home and turn on ESPN or one of the stations that's doing uh, yeah, redos of houses. Those are kind of fun shows. I'm less interested in mercy given to you and more interested in what I'm going to get. I'm less concerned with those who are being persecuted, and they are being persecuted for righteousness' sake all around the globe. I'm more concerned with how good my next meal is going to be. And what I find myself giving thanks for are believers that I've known in the years that I have known Christ who are salt to me who are different, whose lives say, Reggie, your default is upside down. Your default is not who you really are. Your default is Jesus. And then their lives, their lives manifest it. I'm so grateful for friends who have, for people who have been friends for 25 plus years in ministry, who one, at one point made a decision not to go into another profession where they could be wealthy, 
and well-established, but decided to take small little churches and just care for people because they knew that their Lord and Savior, though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and humbled himself and came and served. And time after time as a seminary professor, I've seen the shooting star just burn out and the person who was a C student but just hung in there go out and care for people and have flourishing churches. And I find myself saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, what a blessing they are to me. I could go all the way down this list and name friends who are the opposite of my, my rotting, deteriorating default self and have pictured and modeled for me Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. I got to tell you, my default drive is not purity of heart. I'm very married. I'm very, very happily married. I have three kids whom I love. And I love the life that God has given me. And over the years, people who have quietly, without even knowing what they're doing, have brought me back to my senses, have been single, celibate friends. Singles who have not been called to satisfactions and the kind of intimate relationship that marriage promises, and yet who know an intimacy with their Savior and who know a freedom and a joy in ministry, who are living joyful lives in pursuit of Christ, knowing no loss of humanity, knowing fullness of personhood in an indirect bounce back way that comes back to me and makes me just grateful for the life that I have, that I am living. I don't have to live in some fantasy world. I can live the life that God has given me. And so I, I bless those called to single celibacy. And for, for, for the robustness of the way so many of you some in this room, many not. Love Jesus and know that the baptismal waters that have washed us provide the intimacy with one who came to make us pure and to make us clean and to make us loved, to make us lovely, and to give us the power to love. And finally, there is the light of the world. Salt of the earth, life's preservative, and light to shine in dark places. I'm so grateful that God has called me to this church. I'm grateful for the light that, that happens as the word gets blended with the, with the rich symbolism of the Christian faith. I, I, I love our commitment to biblical truth and orthodoxy and a full sense expression of, of the beauty of God's holiness. But the phrase that is arresting in this passage is Jesus saying that our good works 
are, it's better translated beautiful or noble works, will bring glory, will be seen by people, and they will give glory to God. And I just, I feel like we're at a point in our cathedral's life where it's time to do a reset and to, to, to rethink. A hundred years ago, when this church was just getting off the ground, we established a school on the shores of Lake Eola because our forebears felt that the next generation needed to be able to, to, to know not just Bible, but all of life from God's point of view. That was a beautiful and a noble work that gave Central Florida reason to give glory to God. Members of this church founded the first hospital in Orlando, and they only stopped in like 1918 when the hospital that has become Orlando Regional got started. Our forebears did good and noble works that brought, that gave Central Florida reason to give glory to God. We're living at a, at a really interesting juncture in the life of the city of Orlando. We're experiencing a downtown, we're, we're living, we're ministering in, in a downtown that's about to explode with development in education, business, paramore revitalization. We are an entertainment and gaming mecca of the world. People from, especially from Latin America and Europe come here all the time. Many of them stay and make this their home. And th this is where, I don't know, this is where the preacher is supposed to come with, okay, here's what you go do. And all I got is, could we pray? Could we talk over the next few months about, well, what might it be for us to think more bravely and more boldly about what it is that God is calling us to do to minister into a community that is, well, that is here for us to, to serve? Well, that's pretty much all I got tonight. Let me wrap back around. With the law and the prophets being written on our hearts in blessing, not in curse, with us having the tremendous gift of the mind of Christ, may we look to our God and ask him more and more as we prayed in our opening collect to set us free from the bondage of our sins and to give us the liberty of that abundant life which our Father has made known to us in his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ who lives with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.